Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Native American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Cable, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Marilyn Lake about her 2019 book, Progressive New World, How Settler Colonialism and Trans-Pacific Exchange Shaped American Reform. The paradox of progressivism continues to fascinate more than 100 years on. Democratic but elitist, emancipatory but coercive, advanced and assimilationist, progressivism was defined by its contradictions. In Progressive New World, Marilyn Lake points to the significance of turn of the 20th century exchanges between American and Australasian reformers who shared racial sensibilities, along with a commitment to forging an ideal social order. The book demonstrates that race and reform were mutually supportive as progressivism became the political logic of settler colonialism. Settlers define themselves in new world terms, both against old world feudalism and the indigenous peoples that they considered backward and primitive. Lake also shows how indigenous people at times employ the language and tools of progressivism for their own ends, reshaping the broader progressive movement in the process. Marilyn Lake is a a professorial fellow in history at the University of Melbourne and was formerly president of the Australian Historical Association from 2010 to 2014. A renowned scholar of Australasian and settler colonial history, she has authored, co-authored, and edited many books, including 2008's Drawing the Global Color Line, White Men's Countries, and the International Challenge of Racial Equality co-authored with Henry Reynolds. Marilyn Lake, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for being here. Before we get going with the book, I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about yourself and specifically what led you to the topic and how you became interested in the history of settler colonialism. Sure. Well, broadly speaking, I'm a political historian of Australia and Australasia and settler colonial societies more generally. And as settler colonialism became an increasingly useful framework in which to think about Australasian history, it also invited us to consider histories more comparatively and transnationally. And With uh, the book I did with Henry Reynolds, Drawing the Global Colour Line, which was published in 2008, um, we became uh, completely engaged with transnational history and argued that you can't really understand national histories without taking into account um, transnational movements. And we were particularly focused on the idea of a white man's country and saw that this had to be understood historically in a much larger frame than the national one. Um, And just like settler colonialism, that also demands that we see histories of settler colonialism as much broader than uh, simply the histories of nation states. Right. In in that book, you you discussed, um, I'm remembering uh, Australasia, the United States, as well as places like South Africa. Yes, and slightly um, New Zealand and Canada. Um, And we importantly, one of the shifts in that book was 
I'm really interested as well in historical agency and the political agency um, of peoples and particularly oppressed or subordinated peoples rather than treating them simply as victims of white men or whatever, um, we wanted to um, write about the historical agency of, in the case of Drawing the Global Colour Line, the book starts with the migration, the great migrations of Chinese peoples across the Pacific Ocean in the 19th century, um, both, again, to Australasia and also to North America. And we wanted to argue that those migrations, that modern mobility, if you like, um, were really important in shaping those societies. And similarly, in this book, in Progressive New World, um, following the theoretical work of a number of scholars like um, Lorenzo Verrucini and the late Patrick Wolfe, um, I wanted to point to the historical political agency of Indigenous peoples um, in get both engaging with progressive thought but also rejecting it, also seeking to challenge its premises. So early in this book, Progressive New World, you describe several individuals who were in touch with one another in the late 19th century, among them Charles Pearson. Pearson admired what he saw as the democracy of indigenous people in Australia and deplored British colonialism in India, but also was fundamentally disgusted by native people, often viewing them as simply in the way. Um, so how do you explain all this in, in one person, one sort of complicated person? Yes, and indeed, um, in a way, what you point to is it's, it's very useful to explain these contradictions and tensions by looking at individual people. And as you suggest, Progressive New World focuses on the exchange of ideas um, and the, the formulation of people's subjectivities, their sense of self, in relation to other people. Um, and so Pearson is immensely interesting in that he's, a, he's, he's English um, and English by birth and education. And to me, it was interesting too because he was a historian, a medieval historian, but he was very fiercely engaged politically um, against British class systems, against the inequalities um, of, of countries like England, against the outrageous gap between the rich and the poor. And like many radical liberals in the late 19th century in England, um, he determined to try and forge new societies um, in which those inequalities um, were done away with, in which the state would be enrolled to ease those discrepancies. And he was particularly friendly with Charles Eliot Norton, an American professor of fine arts, um, uh, and so and, and he, Norton, of course, was interested in democracy in the United States. Pearson was interested in forging a new democracy in the Victorian self-governing colony um, in Australia, and he migrated to Australia in the a couple of times. He migrated, then returned to England, and then came back again. Uh, he lived in South Australia and then in Victoria, where he became a politician and a journalist. So he worked as a journalist and a member of the Legislative Assembly, and he contributed in a large way to what was then called state socialism, the regime in Australia which enlisted the state to bring about all sorts of um, equalities and reforms was generally referred to as state socialism as the state was so central to its vision. But here, this is where being a white man um, was quite central because these theorists also considered that uh, white men were should, should be equal to each other, but their whiteness ensured that their sense of citizenship, for example, was a racialized one. And I think this is really crucial to understand with progressivism that on the one hand, uh, citizenship was seen, you know, as, a, as, as having major potential, but on the other hand, citizenship in settler colonial societies was a racialized condition. And they're pretty explicit about this, aren't they? They absolutely are explicit. And it's interesting to me as a historian that until maybe 10, 15 years ago, um, historians didn't used to see what 
what their subjects said. <laughs> that is, <laughs> that their subjects were indeed extremely explicit about being white men and about the the superiority of white men and the virtues of white men, about indeed Australia called itself the Commonwealth the Federation in, from 1901 called itself a white man's country, as did, you know, Canada and New Zealand and the United States and particularly parts of the United States, the south of the United States. Um, they were very explicit. And, in fact, I was really interested when I was researching this to find that their contemporaries, um, including Du Bois, for example, the African-American theorist, the great African-American writer, um, he looked around him and he too saw this ascendant politics of whiteness and wrote an essay about that, which is much less well known than his essay about um, black folk. And he said, what is this whiteness that everywhere is around us? He was writing around, you know, 1902, 1905. What is this whiteness that everyone in the world, you know, deems so valuable? And at one point he says, whiteness is the ownership of the earth forever and ever, which, you know, was a very sort of perceptive claim about these settler colonial societies, which were busy not just... Um, not just dispossessing Indigenous peoples, but also, as I mentioned earlier, keeping out Asiatic peoples. You know, the, these were white men's countries. You're referring to um, souls of white folk, right? From dark yeah, that's water. Right. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. Um, so, so sort of dovetailing with that, how did shared settler colonial pasts give Australians and Americans a, a sort of shared language and open-mindedness to one another? Yes, well, crucial to my analysis is the idea of subjectivity, um, a, a political subjectivity and, and a sense of self, a sense of who they were. And they had, a, around 1900, they had a very strong sense of themselves as um, descendants of the British or English and, as I said, as white folk, as being white and as being living in frontier societies, they often talked about frontier societies, and similarly um, as being pioneers. They used the trope of the pioneer all the time, both in the United States and Australia. And not surprisingly, they read the same sorts of stories and narratives about, you know, in their national histories about, you know, white men being pioneers in the wilderness and settling these countries and, um, you know, like Theodore Roosevelt's Winning of the West is a classic of its kind. Um, so they shared a sense of racial history and they shared a sense of self as white settlers um, undergoing similar ex experiences. So you're among a growing number of scholars to point to the exclusion that was built into progressivism uh, that you've been sort of discussing, most notably the exclusion of non-white people from the political process. But progressives also pushed for women's suffrage um, and for many things that we would today consider progressive. So how do we reconcile these contradictory impulses of exclusion on the one hand and inclusion on the other? And indeed, progressives had in mind a particularly important role for white women and here again, we have to think of womanhood as racialized. Of course, um, it's not just—it's not all women who are seen to be leading, playing a leading role um, in progressive reform. And I have a chapter in my book um, on maternalism, on the political project of maternalism, that was very big amongst white women again in the United States and in Australia, where white women, you know, left the domestic domain and saw themselves as having a very important role in, in the public world, not just only as shaping sort of welfare reform for the societies, but also having a maternal role with regard to the protection, as they would have said, and assimilation of Indigenous peoples. So this is where you, you talk a little bit about the um, the removal of Indigenous children too, right? Indeed. I mean, one of the things, actually one of the general points I argue in my book is, is what I'm doing is not just, as it were, sort of including, um, you know, Native Americans or Indigenous peoples in, in a history of progressivism, but rather I argue 
it's not until we look at Indigenous history, it's not until we look at the history of these countries as settler colonial histories, can we really understand progressivism? You know, we need, you can't understand progressivism until you understand the histories of Indigenous peoples in these countries. It's crucial to see that. And so historians um, used to write about progressivism in terms of how the figure of the child was central to progressive visions, progressive visions about, you know, the home and education and reform. Um, And, you know, increasingly with regard to children's rights, in in the United States, the Children's Bureau, um, the... You know, maternal bureau, the motherhood policies, infant welfare, Mm -hmm. the child was central to this vision. But of course, the child was also central to progressive intentions with regard to Indigenous peoples who were, if they weren't dispossessed and destroyed, they were to be assimilated, absorbed into these new nation states and central to the strategy was the child, was the native child, the Indigenous child. And we know, you know, the appalling history of uh, boarding schools in the United States and in Canada um, and similarly um, such institutions um, in Australia um, where children was particularly so-called half-caste children, were systematically removed from their families and communities to be brought up by white families and white institutions. So if you think about progressivism, um, you can see that these policies were central to progressivism. And it really surprised me when I first started researching the larger history of progressivism how histories generally, especially US histories, um, of progressivism completely ignored Indian policy or, you know, ignored Native Americans. Um, but they would often include immigrants as subjects to be Americanized, but rarely did they go into discuss um, policy with regard to Native Americans um, in this frame of progressivism. And listeners who are familiar with uh, federal Indian policy will know that this is the time of the Dawes Act, um, yes. and and a, and a similar piece of legislation in Australia as well, right? Yes, and indeed, I was struck by the timing. One of our more interesting small L liberal, as we would say, um, radical intellectual political leaders, Alfred Deakin. Um, I start with a quote from Alfred Deakin's papers. Um, in the 1880s or thereabouts when he says something really progressive about how progressives and Democrats are only interested in the future. They have no interest in the past. You know, the past <laughs> was was what they were trying to get away from, the impressions mm-hmm. of the past of the old world in Britain. Um, and it's therefore interesting that, I mean, Deacon is um, he's in Victorian politics and he has the role of chief secretary, as it was called, sort of in charge of domestic policy and he introduces one of the first um, pieces of legislation to regulate Aboriginal peoples and that is the Wins the Doors Act 1887 is that right? Mm -hmm. That's right. His Act is 1886 a year before right? and they're very very similar I mean they're basically about trying to um, assimilate uh, native peoples into the larger polity, um, opening up, taking their land from them so the land could be opened up to white settlers. You know, you can see in this policy how the two things are completely tied together and um, that uh, native peoples ideally would be assimilated into the broader community to take their place, you know, one day in the future as useful citizens, as they might have put it. So um this um, policy of um, giving up what in the United States was called surplus land, for goodness sake, um, giving this surplus land up to settlers um, was very similar to the Australian policy. You know, this is where it's crucial that these are, these are both settlers, settler societies and their settler societies, of course, also resting on immigration, you know, so the so endless influx of waves of migrants um, are land hungry. They want more land and they take land from Indigenous peoples. 
And of course, Patrick Wolf, who you draw on, um, gives us language to, to talk about that uh, in you know the logic of elimination and things like yes. that. Indeed, indeed, that um, these new societies, and that's what's interesting about them being such self-consciously new societies. I, I opened the book again with the Harvard philosophy, philosopher Josiah Royce saying that as he was growing up in California, he always wondered what his parents meant when they continually talked about this being a new society. I, I, I'm so struck by that. You know, there's self-conscious about this, about being new societies. <laughs> and, of course, I mean, unlike England. And to be new societies, of course, they rested on land taken from other societies. You know, they could only construct themselves as new societies because they rested on the dispossession of Indigenous peoples in those places. So the two processes are completely intertwined, as well as the conceptions of what those societies are like. And I argue in Progressive New World that part of the um, ideology, if you like, of progressivism, and particularly it's, it's particularly evident in Australia um, that, and no, but also in the United States, I mean Theodore Roosevelt goes on about this a lot, that, that they, in a way, they redeem themselves in these new worlds. They redeem themselves as they think by building, you know, new advanced democratic societies. These are uh, new democratic societies unlike anything seen in old world Europe. Hmm. Hmm. So in the book's final section, um, and of interest to many listeners, you uh, you discuss the Red Progressives, quite prominently the Society of American Indians, for whom progressivism was an avenue for achieving their own political ends. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Well, I was again quite struck by the parallels um, in Australia and the United States that, because as I said at the beginning, I'm really interested. I'm interested in political history, and I'm interested in the political agency. Um, of groups who have been subordinated or oppressed and the ways in which those groups are able to speak and make demands. Um, and, and so I'm interested in the long history in both countries, um, and I, I know much better the Australian history, of Aboriginal rights campaigns. Um, how did Aboriginal peoples come to make claims for rights? What kinds of rights? You know, the sort of shift from rights to citizenship to rights, land rights, the very concept of land rights, and self-determination. So I'm interested in that broader history. And I was struck that, of course, progressivism as an ideology was so pervasive and the idea that progressive thinking was you know, what was required to build a modern society. It was the basis of a modern citizenship, of a democratic citizenship. So in the 1910s, 1920s, um, progressive um, Indigenous peoples who thought of them or wanted to be or had a vision of being progressive um, often formulated their claims within these frameworks, you know, how how they could and would become progressive citizens. Um, but at the same time, what was so interesting was that they also realised that progressivism inherent to progressive politics was um, the disparaging of, of what progressives considered to be primitive or barbaric. Um, societies, um, progressivism um, p- put itself against against tradition. To be progressive was not to be pro- traditional. And so Indigenous um, reformers realised that they wanted, while, want, while claiming progressive citizenship, they did not want that to be at the expense of recognising the value of their own cultures, their own societies, their own values, their uh, their their own their own writings, their own sense of self, and in both cases, both in Australia and the United States, their claims to land, to land rights, to try and get land returned to them, to try and reclaim land that had been taken, this became quite central to Indigenous progressivism 
in both countries, as well as, um, you know, the, as I say, the rights to traditional ceremony, to culture, um, to custody of their children. And so what I argue is that in challenging progressivism to move beyond its vision of a sort of homogeneous polity where sameness was everything, in challenging progressivism to recognise difference, to recognise the value of cultural difference, um, Indigenous reformers led the way in the 20th century in reforming, in changing what would come to be seen as progressive. They led the way in, in, in persuading progressivism to become more multicultural, if you like, um, in persuading people that to be progressive was to recognise multiculturalism, to recognise difference, and also um, in both the United States and Australia in recognising uh, the importance of history, the importance of the past, the importance of the history of dispossession. So the so un, unlike what Alfred Dickin had said about for progressives the future is everything, um, they argued really strongly in both cases that central to building a future was recognising what had happened in the past, the century of dishonour. Mm-hmm. And so, so there's a sense that there's sort of a dialectic that red progressives impact mainstream progressivism just as much as the other way around. Absolutely, that's exactly what I wanted to explore. That um, it's not, it's not, as it were, simply a matter of um, indigenous progressives being derivative in, it, in that sense, but rather they start to formulate a political program within that progressive framework, but then quickly realise that um, they want to point to the centrality of what happened in the past and also to different sorts of rights. So, so yes, the right to citizenship but not just citizenship, land rights, the rights to culture, the rights to children, the, the whole sort of lot of different sets of rights. So exactly, they challenge progressivism and, and in doing that, as I say, in the 20s and 30s, they paved the way for progressive thinking itself to change, you know, that what we might now regard as progressive um, is not what was regarded as progressive, you know, in 1905 or something. So what do, what, what do mainstream progressives think about what red pro- progressives are saying in the first two decades of the 20th century? Yes, that's a good question. I mean, by and large, Let's say, and actually the other thing too about speaking about Indigenous progressivism in Australia and the United States, in Australia the organisation was called the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association. So it was in their title. Um, in the United States, as you said, it's the Society of American Indians, um, the first all-Indian national. Actually, this is the other thing about these organisations. They were very national in their claims and their visions. They made claims on the nation. And so the Society of American Indians was famously the first organisation um, whose membership was confined um, to Indians. And it, it, they wanted to create what they called an all-Indian public opinion for the nation. And similarly in Australia, although this organisation largely functioned in the state of New South Wales, its name, the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association, signalled their desire to speak for the nation, to intervene in national politics. Um, So what was the response of white um, mainstream societies? In in Australia, um, not much really immediately. One of the central political challenges of the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association was to the general policy of protection, as it was called. There were protection boards in each state in Australia that regulated the lives of Aboriginal peoples um, and they wanted those boards to be dismantled, discarded. And it's in this context that they start to articulate a claim to self-determination. And that phrase is used a lot in the 1920s. Um, among Aboriginal people um, in Australia, the de- the desire, the demand for self determination, and that of course also picks up on the bro- always the broader context of um, 
President Wilson's um, vision of self-determination at the League of Nations, which had happened um, 1918-1919. Now, that demand for self-determination and the dismantling of the Aboriginal protection boards, I mean, those things finally come about, but they take a long while. And so the Aboriginal Protection Board was changed by in name to a welfare board, you know, so they got rid of the sort of language of protection, but it was still pretty regulatory um, until about the 1950s and 60s. Um, and self-determination becomes a sort of nationally proclaimed policy for Aboriginal people by the 1960s and 70s. In the United States, change happens earlier with uh, John Collier and the Merriam Report in the 1920s into um, Indian administration. And one thing that's really different in both countries is that, as you said before, um, Indian policy in the United States is federal from the beginning. Um, And so policy change can take place at that federal level, and that's what happens um, in the so-called Indian New Deal in the 1930s where there's more more gestures towards um, providing self-determination to tribes. Um, So there's a sort of local-federal relationship, whereas in Australia the um, administration is all state-based. So things happen at a piecemeal in a piecemeal way, state by state in Australia. And one of the important things in Australia is that there's a referendum held in 1967 to give the federal state, the Commonwealth, power to make legislation for Aboriginal peoples. And that cha- that's when, you know, you can then start having broader national policies of self-determination. In the United States, it's already a federal policy. There's already the Bureau of Indian Affairs And so, again, actually, again, interestingly, um, and I write about this quite a bit in the chapter in Progressive New World, um, a lot of the radicals, or they call radicals in the Society of American Indians, their aim is to get rid of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. You know, they see this as very paternalist and protectionist in the same way. As in Australia, they demanded to get rid of protection boards. Um, John Collier becomes um, the Commissioner for Indian Affairs, doesn't he, in 1933, something like that? Yeah, something like that. And this is seen, I mean, he works his way through Indian reform through the 20s and 30s. And actually, I also argue that he and his career also should be seen. He comes out of um, reform movements in community-based reform movements in New York, initially um, involved in policy with regard to migrants, to immigrants. Um, And so, you know, he's a classic, you know, progressive idealist and he works across various areas of policy before he becomes um, Commissioner of Indian Affairs. Um, So, yes, and so and then I write about how there's, you know, there's a lot of um, ambivalence amongst different different uh, Indian communities across the United States um, about this new proclaimed policy of self-determination and some resist it for various reasons. So um, the other thing that's important there, I think, is um, the women in the Society of American Indians are very important and I look at their some of their different takes on progressivism and reform and it's interesting I think maybe in 1911 in the year that the organization's founded that Laura Cornelius Kellogg puts forward a proposal for a sort of version of self-determination at the tribal level um, based on reservations and their industrial capacity which I suggest is actually quite far seen Um, you know, in some way she anticipates what Collier does 20 years later. Um, But at the time in 1911, she's pretty much ignored, partly partly because then the whole idea idea of of reservations and the continuing reservations themselves are seen as oppressive. So there's a lot of dispute about what the status of reservation should be.
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off and you, you make the point earlier too that the uh that the successes that progressivism had early on in the u.s were mostly at the local and state level whereas yes. indian policy happens at the federal level so maybe it yes. takes it some time to catch up there and also the new deal itself in the united states of course is not mm-hmm. enacted at the federal level until the 1930s. Until the 30s. Yeah. Yes. There, so on the one hand, I mean, this is interesting about settler colonialism. Clearly, you know, both societies share a history of settler colonialism and it's a useful framework in which to see the national histories. On the other hand, of course, the national histories are distinct and their and their polities and their, their politics are distinct. So, and both are federations, so that's sort of interesting too about how the powers are divvied up between the federal state and the states and then the local level. Um, one reason why there's such trans-Pacific exchange of ideas um, around policies to do with labour and minimum wages and feminism is because these things are enacted at the federal level in Australia. So they have you know, quite, um, quite, they're quite influential. They have quite an international power, um, whereas in the United States it's often more more often at the, the state level or the local community level. Um, and in Indigenous affairs this is interesting because, as you say, policy is enacted in the United States at the federal level, but in Australia that's the one area in this sort of series of reforms that is still state-based. So you don't, ha- you don't have the same sort of national policies or national invent- investment in reform of Indigenous policy in Australia until the 1960s. So you don't, I mean, some reviewers have commented on the fact that I trace these exchanges be- of ideas and between people in a lot of areas, but this doesn't happen um, in, in with regard to Indigenous policy. Um, and why is that? And that's an interesting point. Um, and in response to that, I think one reason is obviously that um, in Australia it's, it's state-based administration. Um, a second reason, I think, is that in both cases, policymakers, reformers, their claims were on the nation, like it was really important that they try and shape the nation. And so they weren't so interested, I don't think, in what was happening internationally. And in, and indeed, there's a history here to be looked at of when um, Indigenous affairs is first sort of taken up by international bodies. Um, and it's not really until with the United Nations that you start to get working groups on Indigenous policy. And until that and that's, I mean, that's really interesting too because in Australian Aboriginal people, when they, if they identified internationally, as I set out, they were just as likely to identify with black international groups rather than Indigenous ones. And this is really interesting too. So they, they're quite influenced by Marcus Garvey's organisation. UNIA. Um, yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, and therefore with what's coming out of New York with regard to international black politics. Um, so that so that's another interesting things thing is the the potential, the, the, the ambiguities of identification um, with regard to indigenous peoples, like with whom to the, do they identify? 
I talk about um, when I'm writing about Charles Eastman that he went to the Universal Races Congress in London in 1911, and that was probably the first big international conference about racism, and it was and it was huge and had representatives from all over the world, from hundreds and hundreds of places. And um, one reason it was set up then was to address the tensions between the so-called East and the so-called West, that is between Asian countries and West. And those tensions were arising in part about the immigration exclusion policies enacted in both the United States and Australia. Um, but it's called the Universal Races Congress because it, you know, wants to bring together people talking about their own races. And so Charles Eastman is there talking about the American Indian, which he gives a very interesting paper, which is basically a, a history, as he sees it, of American Indian experience. And he sees the reservation period, you know, this is a dark period of imprisonment, which, again, is interesting as background to him then becoming a founding member of the SAI. And also Du Bois is there too, um, and he will shortly become um, a founding member of the Association for the Advancement of Coloured Peoples and and forming the magazine Crisis in the United States. So, so, so there are international movements afoot in which people place themselves or talk about themselves as races as well as making claims on the nation state to be sort of equal citizens in those nation states. And I also point out that for many of the male reformers like Eastman and like Du Bois, they think of these things in terms of their manhood. They, they always talk about their manhood and redeeming their manhood and their status as men. You know, they feel oppressed as men. So um, these are very complica- complicated things. <laughs> right. So it, it sounds very complicated, and and um, but it also sounds like this is this is all very important stuff. So so if you can sum it up in in just a little bit, uh, what have earlier historians of of progressivism missed in not employing this settler colonial framework? Because it seems like there's so much there. Yes, indeed. No, I think that's one of the astonishing things. I you know because as you know, there's a ton of stuff written about progressivism in the United States and. I combed through all that um, and I was quite astonished that there was virtually no attention to um, to, Af- to Native American policy and policy making. Um, and I thought, how could this be? Because when I looked into it further, I found that Native American policy making you know, with all those white women being field matrons and taking the children away and the whole thing was an assimilation and education towards, you know, civilization. The whole thing was so central to the progressive vision. It was so central to the progressive project so that I came to see if you looked at... um, Indian history, if you looked at policy with regard to Native Americans during this period, you would get quite a good idea of what progressive what progressivism was about. Now, what historians, of course, started to look at the African American experience, which, by the way, um, of course, one reason those of us from outside the United States. Um, tend to, because African-American history is much more prominent in the United States than Native American history, and it's as if some of us think, um, you know, countries can only deal with one founding trauma. You know, the great founding trauma of the United States was slavery. Um, And therefore it's as if American historians have been quite late to come to see settler colonial history as a, a crucial framework for American history, you know, that mm-hmm. um, if they could see settler colonial history as, as the central framework, I mean, in only in the last 10 years or so, you know, there's that great book on California, on the genocide in California. Madly. 
Yeah, that's right. Oh. Um, only quite recently. And, in fact, I spent a year at Harvard um, in 2001 as Professor of Australian Studies there, and that was really interesting for all sorts of reasons to do mm-hmm. with this. Um, hmm. One was um, at that point Australian Aboriginal peoples were having um, – they were – having a high point in terms of national prominence and national visibility and um, discursively, if you like, whereas that appeared to me not at all to be the case in, with Native Americans. And so I asked my students, I used, to, <laughs> I used to ask my students all sorts of things. I asked my students if they could name um, some Native Americans and they were really hard pressed, you know. Mm-hmm. Most couldn't name any. I mean, and this would have been astonishing in Australia, where several Aboriginal, um, Australian Aboriginal political leaders were really well known, but also um, film stars and people in dance companies and, you know, people, a whole lot of people. Um, and so I was really struck by that. And one or two said, ah, oh, you know, there's that guy. Is he in the Senate? Is that one in the Senate? And so it, that alerted me to. Um, the relative comparative lack of discursive presence of Native American history in the United States. Hmm. Um, And the other thing, this has changed since then, I think, but the other thing that was happening was that when the history department there was putting up proposals for um, new jobs, new positions, um, they still treated Native American studies as another ethnic studies, um, you know, so that you might have an Asian studies position or Latin American studies or whatever. Hmm. And I was astonished at this because um, already discursively history had changed so much in Australia that people would never consider, you know, Aboriginal studies or something as just another ethnicity. You know, it was right. people used to say in Australia, you know, we are the invaded ones. They are the invaded ones. They're not, you know, this is this is sort of crucial. They're the first people, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so these different, different, the different positions of um, Indigenous peoples in the two countries histories and political presence I think are really interesting and part of that part of that comes from the different political structures um, that there's the there's the federal dominance in the United States but there's also tribal government so um, there's not a very strong national presence in Washington was my sense um, anyway I went off on a tangent <laughs> <laughs> that's fine <laughs> what, what? Sorry, what did you ask? <laughs> did um, you? No, you you, you answer the question and then some. Um, but so just to change gears uh, a little bit, this this is in many ways as you've as you've suggested um, a book about affinity, a book about connection, about communication um, across bo- borders. Uh, so, what sorts of sources do you rely on for a book like this? Yes, indeed. Well, actually, and I should here give a plug to our National Research Grant Scheme. The ARC stands for the Australian Research Council. And again, this is the difference between the two countries. I often joke about the ARC is a legacy of state socialism in Australia, um, which it is in many ways. And the other legacy of state socialism is that academics, historians, have had very generous access, access to very generous sabbatical leave schemes whereby, you know, every six months or so. And 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 combined with the resources, the ARC provides lots and lots of research fellowships, which are salaries, you know, for two or three or four years that enable people to do research full-time and also pays for them to go overseas to do research. So I could never have done Progressive New World without those resources. You know, it, it, I, I've enjoyed um, two research professorial research fellowships, which I've been extremely lucky to have. And then on top of that, paid, uh, you know, travel money to go to the United States. So I did a lot of research for the book. Of course, you couldn't write a book like this unless you did do the research. This is the this is the real challenge of transnational history. To do it properly, you really do need to do research in a lot of countries. Mm. Um, and so, and that was the same with drawing the global colour line. You know, we did research in a whole range of countries. And for this book, I did a lot of research in the Library of Congress 
and a lot um, in the Massachusetts Historical Society, well, some in Wisconsin, some in um, California, you know. So I was able to, um, and in Harvard, to travel around and research archives and use libraries. Um, and so you'll see from these sources that it relies on a whole range of sources ranging from, you know, legislation to parliamentary debates to inquiries, a lot of people's personal papers. Um, I looked at Robert Valentine's papers. He was he was a progressive commissioner for Indian Affairs appointed, I think, in 1912, no, 1909 by Roosevelt. Um his papers are in the Massachusetts Historical Society. I looked at a lot of personal papers, um, a lot of organisational papers, papers of the Society of American Indians, papers of the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association, and then lots and lots of newspapers and, um, you know, journals and stuff. So quite exhaustive and really it um, builds on about 10 years' work, I would think, overall. And it also builds on my earlier interests in political movements. I've done a lot of work on the history of feminism, a lot of work on histories of um, movements for um, anti-racism, um, both um, on Chinese Australians um, as well as Aboriginal Australians. So it builds on, and also I've done a lot of work as a labour historian. So, you know, the book itself builds on um, accumulated work. Well, thank you for that. And um, we have taken up quite a bit of your time today, but before we let you go, uh, do you mind sharing what's what's next for you? Are there any new projects in the works? Gosh, um, <laughs> no, not a, not a large one. I mean, part of my, as you said at the beginning, I've actually written and edited whatever, quite a few books, I think about 14. And part of my, and and, and my work became more and more sort of global, transnational, and and part of doing that, you know, it takes so long to write a book like that, so long to do the research. Mm. So, you know, I couldn't do another book like that. Um, I so, I so, you know, I just now, I do now more local things and, you know, chapters and articles and stuff. So I don't think I'll do um, another large book. I'm quite interested in the long and fraught history of equal pay or the lack of it um, and also its international history. But um, I don't think I don't think I'll embark on that yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much and uh, thank you again for being with us today and for, for talking. Thank you, John. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.